Thank you for listening to the Cross Loganville podcast as we continue in our series, 29, the book of Acts. All right, Acts 13. Um, this is kind of a cool place in Acts. It's where there's this shift from talking about all the work of the apostles to really focusing on Paul. This is the chapter where we no longer call him Saul and we start seeing his life play out as a believer um, in the mission field that's before him. So this book or this chapter starts in Antioch and ends in Antioch, but they're two different Antiochs. It's like going, well, I drove from Greenville to Greenville, okay? Two different names, right? We're going to start in Syrian Antioch. If we throw this little glorious, huge map up here, in my notes, it's this big, it's tiny. On the top right-hand corner right there, that's Antioch in Syria. That's where we're going to start. And Paul and Barnabas are going to travel across the sea to Cyprus, this little island right here. And uh, we're going to talk about Paphos right there. And then he's going to travel north to Antioch in Pisidia, which is modern-day Turkey. Okay? So just a little bit of reference as you think about these travels. And since we're mainly talking about him moving around, I think it's important. All right, so keep that little image in your brain as we get going. All right? Now, before we jump into some of the text in 13, we're going to jump back to Acts 1. In the words of Jesus, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and as far as the remotest part of the earth. Okay? We're starting to see this happen, right? In Acts 5, we see that the apostles, Peter included, are put in jail um, because they don't like that they're sharing all this stuff. It's it's becoming contagious. People are starting to believe they're causing problems, so they throw them in jail, and an angel performs a miraculous jailbreak. They're out on the streets sharing the gospel again. And the high priest says, we told you not to do this. Your doctrine has spread all through Jerusalem. That's a pretty cool thing, huh? Right? Just like Jesus said, you're going to be my witnesses here. The Holy Spirit's going to be on you. And Peter's response If you remember, it was like, I'm not following your orders. i got to do what God's calling me to do. Okay? Doctrine has spread. What does it look like if we said, your doctrine across Loganville has spread all through Loganville. Everybody's worshiping. It's causing all kinds of problems. We'd be like, that's right. Rock it. Okay? So the gospel is spreading, right? Peter is now in Judea. Philip is in Samaria, okay? And we see this sending of Paul happen, all right? So all these things that Jesus foretold are happening, all right? In, so they say that they're gathered in Antioch in Syria, right? And there's all these great teachers there, Barnabas, Simeon, uh, Lucius, uh, Menean, sorry, Saul, who will be Paul. They're all there, okay? In verse 2, it says this, As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Tim and I were talking midweek, and I said, I can stop there. I can speak for two hours on that verse right there. Okay. Now, depending on what version of the Bible you're reading, the word ministered could read serving. It could read worshiping. 
Okay? What you learn real quick when you study the Bible is that the English language is extremely limited. And they give us a word that means so much, and we go, what's really close? But I love this word ministered. There's a reason I picked this. See, we have a culture that the Christian culture in America loves worship. It's not only an act as a follower, it's also an industry and a commodity that is stolen. And we love worship songs. And there's some we don't like. And we're like, this one works for me. This one doesn't. And we pick and choose through them. And we come in and say, I'm so pumped to worship today. But how does our mindset change if I came in and said, I long to minister to God today? This is very similar. You see Paul use a very similar word in the Psalms multiple times. My sheets are out of order. How did this happen? Um, beautiful, okay? You, say, you see a very similar... I'm still out of order. Can someone count to four? four? I'm sorry. Okay, you see very similar words from David in the Psalms. I will bless the Lord... At, this is Psalm 34. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear of it and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. And let us exalt his name together. Bless the Lord. Psalm 103, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Do you come in here and go, I get to bless God? You come in with a mindset, I get to bless him. I get to minister to God. And that might seem weird. It could even seem arrogant in your mind. What's my, what's my role in that? Okay, let me tell you, I, I went witness ministry almost every night at my house. Okay, like this. My 15-year-old, who's six inches taller than her mom, <laughs> plugs in her phone to charge in our kitchen, lets the dog out that sleeps in her room, and then she comes over and she sits on her mom and just hugs her for five to ten minutes ministering to her mom. Every mom in here understands exactly what I'm saying to you right now, okay? I watch it in awe. I'm like, you're not doing anything. You're just sitting there hugging her, and mom goes, you choose to love me. This ministers to me. It's not without her gifts to my daughter. She gets to know the love of her mom even better in those times. Of not, they don't say anything. Sometimes it's awkward for me. <laughs> But there's this ministry that happens to her mom that is something that every parent wants from their child, right? My other daughter ministers in a different way. She's much more service-oriented. I mean, she definitely is a hugger and things like that, but we came home from a, vac a vacation a month ago or so, and she had gotten back a day before us, and she had organized like three closets. She cleaned out our refrigerator. She cleaned the whole downstairs. She went through the pantry and organized it and all this stuff. And we opened the door and she just stood there all proud. <laughs> and she was just like, I did a thing. Come on. Let me show you. And just blessed her mom. Ministered to her mom. Took something that was going to be possible, something that she was going to need to do. And she sacrificed her own time and gave it away to bless her mom and me, definitely, in that time. 
So following Jesus is not some self-help program, but I feel like in the American church, we kind of treat it that way. We come to some place of great struggle and we say, God, relieve this for me. And I think there's not, that's not totally absent of the process. God generally meets us in our selfishness. But when we really find him, we learn that worship and ministering to him is taking the attention off ourselves and putting it on him. This can be hard to do because our culture teaches us to kind of be selfish and protective of what's going on and we want things to happen and we want them to happen quick. But I believe that ministering to God is taking your burdens and your agendas and even your victories and really placing them to the side and focusing on exalting Him and praising Him, serving Him, speaking of what He's done and lifting Him up. That last song is a perfect example. Say, I lift my voice to worship you. Take joy, my King, in what you hear. We want to honor Him. And this, this takes practice in a mindset shift that I don't, I'm not sure we're all totally ready for. It's hard. It's a struggle. You've got a lot going on to shift your mind there. But how would it change us? How would it change us as a body if when we came in, we, our language changed and our heart posture changed and we said, I'm pumped to come worship the Lord today. Honestly, I think if the American church did that, churches would feel a less responsibility to entertain you guys so much because we weren't here for you. So we take the laser beams out and all the other things that happen and whatever else churches do to try to say, and there's purpose for some of that because maybe a non-believer shows up to see something crazy you're going to do. But a lot of churches are stuck in it. They're stuck in entertaining you and it, then it becomes about you. What do I get out of this? I believe as we make that shift, we see less people getting church hurt and even church bored because they're not there for them. When you stop asking of how this benefits me and how do I experience the Lord and when the crazy paradox of the whole thing is that you come and you focus on the Lord and you minister to him, he ministers to you and he builds you up. And I say it's not a self-help program and I mean that, but you'll get better. But you got to give yourself away, Right? When I counsel people who've done something stupid and their marriage is in trouble, and I say, don't just fix this to save your marriage, fix it to honor the Lord. Because if you do it just to fix your marriage, as soon as that's back, those temptations will be back again. Realize the Lord is with you always. Honor him. He will be at the center of it. Okay? In the, you can see, I could go, I mean, I promise I'm going to move along, along from this topic, but I'm going to say one last thing, okay? God is intensely jealous for your affection, okay? And that can seem odd if you think, I'm supposed to minister to God, I'm going to bless him, and he's jealous for my affection. I don't feel like that big of a deal. You are to him, you're his creation, and when he gave you the free will to choose, he gave you the free will not to choose him. But when you choose him, you bless him. And it stirs something inside of you because you're walking in the purpose for which you were made. With me? That's one verse. <laughs> All right. And now that my sheets are probably in order, we'll move along. Okay. 
So they're ministering to God. And the Holy Spirit says, hey, I need them set apart for this task, right? This is very uh, similar to like ordaining them for this mission. And or, there's nothing powerful in ordaining. It's recognizing the power that they have. Okay? You have the ability to go do this, so I'm sending you. So they send Barnabas and Paul. John and Mark comes along with them for some of this, but... They travel, they travel down, as you saw on that map, uh, to uh, Seleucia, where there's a port. It's about 16 miles from Antioch. They sail across to the island of Cyprus. They end up in this town called Paphos. And in this town, there is a Jewish uh, false prophet. They also call him a sorcerer or a magician. And these are very contradictory concepts. It's very anti-Jewish to be a sorcerer at the same time. Scholars believe that um, because of the Roman road, uh, Roman road population and multiple cultures coming in, he was taking little pieces from all of these things that he had learned and made this new theology from all these different thought processes that were happening. If that doesn't sound familiar, pay attention. That's what lots of people do. That's where we get a lot of messed up religious thought is taking a piece of even a political view and throwing in and go, that must be a Jesus thought. And things get skewed. So this guy seems like a smart guy. He's speaking with authority. There's a guy called a proconsul. He's basically a governor over this town. And he, his name is Sergius Paulus. And he's given this guy who calls himself Bar Jesus, which means son of Jesus, some authority to speak to him in wisdom. He's trying, the governor is seeking wisdom and he's given his ear to this guy who's been leading him astray. But the governor really is a smart man. And so he hears about Paul and Barnabas and them sharing in the area and says, I want to hear from them. And Bar Jesus immediately tries to step between them and says, no, no, don't listen to these guys. Listen to me. Don't listen to them. And it says in Acts 13, verse 9, but Paul, who was also, I'm sorry, but Saul, who was also known as Paul, this is the shift. It happened that quick. From now on, Paul, which is good for me because I won't read it wrong. Um, filled with the Holy Spirit, stared at him. You can just imagine that stare, right? Okay, he is about to get real serious. I had a music teacher in elementary school, I think who had a very similar stare when I think about it. I remember talking to some other people while she was talking and all of a sudden the room went silent. And you know, you can feel when somebody's staring at you, you know, and you turn and there's this look and you're like, oh gosh, they teach you that and teach in school because it's scary, right? He's, so he stares at him, right? And in this moment, the Holy Spirit is stirring inside of him and says he's filled with the Holy Spirit. And he says, you who are full of all deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not stop making crooked the straight ways of the Lord? Now behold, the hand of God is upon you. Normally we say that in a good way. This is not. And you will be blind and not see the sun for a time. And immediately a mist and a darkness fell upon him. And he went about seeking those who would lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had happened, being amazed at the teaching of the Lord. Okay, there's a couple things in here. Paul is bold. Bold. 
right? I mean, this is a bold step to go, God's going to make you blind, right? I don't know if the Holy Spirit said, hey, you know that thing I did to you? I'm going to do that to him. Or if Paul, just in his boldness, said that was a highly effective technique for transition. (laughs) So I'm just going to pull that out. Either way, it's bold. And we see the governor of this town radically changed, shifting his eyes towards Jesus. Why? Because of the teaching of Paul and this boldness and the power of the Holy Spirit in motion. That's crazy to me how awesome. He, he just came at that. No fear. That's it. Stared at him like a gunslinger or something. I love it. Okay. And it seems like in our world, right, you're filled with the Holy Spirit. You're gentle. And you say, oh, come with me. No, come, you know, it's always like that, right? Clearly it's not. Filled with the, <clears throat> filled with the Holy Spirit. He called him the son of the devil, which is important because he named himself son of Jesus. Okay? Here's what I want you to consider. There's a couple of things that I know God doesn't tolerate. And one of them is leading people away from the truth. So you see Jesus flipping tables, hitting people with cords as they disrespect the temple. You also see Jesus in John 8 as he's approached by Pharisees. He calls them the son of the devil because they're trying to steer people away from him. He said, if you worship the same father as me and I am the truth, we're not brothers. You're worshiping something else. You are the son of the devil. You're leading people astray. That's what the devil does, right? He lives in deceit, wants to push you away. And here's where this is scary to me. It's e- Well, let me say this. So a long time ago, I heard this rabbi talking, and he was talking about the Ten Commandments, and he said, Christians, especially in America, think that when we say, do not use the Lord's name in vain, we're saying, don't stub your toe and say Jesus or GD or something like that, okay? He says, a Jew never reads it that way. They read it, do not carry the Lord's name in vain which means do not do evil in the name of God. Do not lead people away from the truth. We take this very seriously. That is the devil's work. You're pushing him farther away. You're dealing with eternity in those moments, and you have no right. Okay. Immediately when I first heard that, I went doing evil in the name of God. That's like terrorism, right? And I wouldn't be wrong, right, to say God sent me here to kill you. That would not be right, okay? But scarier is the nuanced pastor who's not telling you the truth because he's trying to keep his attendance high and won't tell you the things that might be slightly less politically correct or might cause some tension in you. Because you're owed the truth, eternity's in the balance, right? That's why Jesus said, don't lead these kids astray. Don't cause them to stumble. He looks at us and says, lead to the truth, not away from it. If not, you're doing the devil's work. You with me? All right. Okay. (laughs) This is so fun. I love it. Um, All right, so next... 
We leave, this, we leave the island, we sail north, and we end up in the last place, which is Antioch in current Turkey, um, or Pisidia, right? And Paul always goes to the temples. He, he preaches the gospel to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. That's how this always works. And he goes to, on the Sabbath, goes to this gathering. They're celebrating the law. They, which is what they do every time. They talk through it. They celebrate the prophets and what's been foretold. But part of common practice was when there was a rabbi in the room, they would ask him, do you want to share anything? Would you like to encourage us? And Paul, said, Paul agrees to this. And I'll summarize some of this for you. As to not read it all. He says, you know what? God's been good to us, to our people. Through Abraham... He delivered us from Egypt. He gave us judges to save us. We asked for a king. He gave us King Saul. He gave us King David. And he told us that through David's line, the Savior would come. And you know what? He did. And it was Jesus. This is who, this is who John the Baptist said, I am unfit to tie his shoes. He has come. And this is starting to shake the room. I can just picture this room like almost amening if it was our culture. Like God was good to us through Abraham, yeah. Rescued us from Egypt, yeah. Right? Gave us judges and kings, yeah. And then gave us the Savior in Jesus. Really? <gasps> okay. Now he's talking to Gentiles and Jews, and you start to feel the room split between people who are probably pretty angry about this because their whole power structure and everything is hung up in it, and the people who are going, feeling life and freedom come out of his voice. In uh, verse 26, it says, Brothers, sons of Abraham's family, and those among you who fear God. So he separates this into the Jews and the Gentiles, right there. Those who fear God are Gentiles, right? To us, the message of this salvation has been sent for those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, recognizing neither him nor the declaration of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled these by condemning him. Let me make that really plain English. You celebrate these prophetic words, every week, and you missed him. And not only that, you fulfilled it by condemning him. The very thing that you've been celebrating this whole time. So we'll just say he's not mincing words. He's throwing down at this point. And though they found no grounds for putting him to death, they asked Pilate that he be executed when they had carried out everything that was written concerning him, listen to that, right? Everything that was written, everything that you predicted, they carried it out. You carried it out. They took him down from the cross, laid him in a tomb, and God raised him from the dead. You can almost feel like this room's pretty quiet, right? That room, I bet, was dead quiet, right? We thought you were going to encourage us. And it says in 38, we're going to skip down just a little bit. Therefore, let it be known to you, brothers, 
that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And through him, everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. A couple of things here. Okay? You hold up this law and you celebrate it. The law can't save you. Jesus can. Okay? You are looking at this thing that says, man, we're messed up and we're falling short and let me, let me strive to meet all these requirements. You won't, but Jesus can save you. The law is not the cure. The law is an x-ray of what is broken. Jesus is the cure. So he comes hard at them, but then gives them this relief by saying, but he invites you in. Through all things, through, through him, you can be cured. And the place goes wild, right? They are, people are asking, would you come back and speak to us more? We want this word of life. Why other people are extremely angry, all right? Generally, that's what truth does. Some are hanging on tight to what they've known, and others are dying to be freed of what is chaining them up. So Paul, in this unique opportunity, lays it down. The man is bold. These are places where they have the ability to put you in jail or kill you if they don't like what you say. And he's going after it. And there's a couple of questions that I started asking myself as I studied. I said, where does, how is he so attentive to the Spirit? I mean, this, this is new for him, right? How long has he actually known the Word of God, or, or known Jesus, okay? Acts 9, Damascus Road experience, he is blind for three days, Jesus is revealed to him, and he is in. Acts 13, he's standing there in boldness, learning, he used to control the situation through violence, and now he is speaking in grace and love to people. That's a big shift. Well, in my study, I found out 9 to 13 is a 10-year gap. Paul has a Ph.D. in Jesus following. Okay? He's hanging out with people who hung out with Jesus. Okay? He's, he is taking it all in because God is not going to send somebody who doesn't know how to be attentive to the Holy Spirit yet on such a mission. He had to prep him and prepare him we have a saying here, reach, teach, train, and send. There's a reason send is at the end of that. Because Paul was learning. God was maturing him to a place where he could go and be ready and have an answer for the hope that he believes. And that boldness where his love for the Lord was foundation. He had a stake in the ground. He wasn't brand new. And I think in church culture, sometimes we're so excited in the beginning. Like when we first get saved and we have a vision for some ministry, some calling that God has put on us, and we start running after it while God's behind going, slow up, you're not ready yet. And it's going to lead to some sort of disaster. And you wonder why it happened because it was such a godly vision, but you were ahead of it. I have a friend who, as a young man, knew he wanted to be a pastor. 
And he authentically loved the Lord. And I remember when he's like 18, he tries to start a service that he's preaching at. And I'm like, okay, mostly young people. Maybe he'll learn something. And then at 21, he gets hired by a church to be the youth pastor. And he's like, well, I'm hoping I'm there for like a year. And then they let me plant a church. And I said, dude, Jesus was 30 before he started. And he, he was God. right? It's okay for it to take time. Much like authentic Southern barbecue, it's better when it's slow. You got to take time. You feel me, Drew. You know what I'm saying, right? You can't rush it, okay? There's a process of you learning to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit, understand that when God is actually speaking to you so that you can be effective, okay? Now, I wish this was actually the problem all the time. Everyone's too eager, Everyone's just running around. That would be a better problem than what is more our problem, which is we never get sent. We get saved. We're like, this is great. I'm getting freed up. I'm studying. I'm taking it in. I'm listening to worship music in my car. I'm at church almost every Sunday. When I'm not, I listen to a podcast while I'm jogging, and I'm learning, and I'm consuming, and I'm consuming, and I'm consuming, and I take it in, and the only thing I ever use it for is theological debate. Because here's what I know. God is ascending God. Okay? The evidence is all through the word. If you miss it, here's some quick reminders. Abraham, Isaiah, Jonah, Peter, Paul, not Mary. I don't know. No, maybe she was sent. Sorry, that was a tangent. Okay? Jesus himself sent from heaven. He is ascending God. So this could bring some tension in you. Okay? Now, you need to be prepared. you got to be ready. But some sending is real easy. Where are your mission fields? And you guys know Ronnie and Jenna, if you've been around for a little while. They've been in Europe ministering. And we have you know, missionaries in multiple countries in the world. And you're like, I, I don't speak other languages good. And, and they don't serve food that I like. It would be so hard. I don't know if God is calling me to these places. Okay, let me tell you your first mission field, and I don't even have to pray about it is your family, okay? And I mean your immediate family, guiding your kids towards the truth, being an example to them, to your spouse, loving the Lord. But I also mean your mother-in-law. Okay? Note the people who laugh because they have interesting relationships with their mother-in-law. I'm just kidding. Okay, there's... There's some people who are a challenge in your family, and it can be more of a challenge, but making yourself available, having them know where your hope is placed, your workplace, your neighborhood. See, I, I had the, a great opportunity to go to Africa several times, and Lisa was working with a ministry there that does uh, child sponsorship. And I mean, it's not like a joyous vacation. You're, you get to like shower every five days or something like that. I mean, it's rough. You're dirty and giving it all away. But every time I left, I was like, I think I got more out of that than I gave. 
and I'm just with these kids, and most of them are trying to ask me candy and I, for candy, and I don't know what they're saying, and you know, all this stuff, but you're just loving on them, and sweating, and playing guitar, and building things for them, and doing VBS, and proclaiming the love of God, and then when you leave, you're like, I felt like I was giving, but when I'm leaving, I'm like, was that for me? It's a paradox, okay? But a lot of you may never leave the country for the aspects of missions, Okay? Your neighborhood is a great place because for some reason in America, neighborhoods, we used to like know each other and like your person across the street, every, you knew who they were, you knew their kids and you could even discipline their kids, right? That was when I was a kid. But now people like almost try to avoid knowing their neighbors, right? I remember being at a bus stop in the house that we were in before this and talking to the parents there and getting to know people and this one guy who lived across the street he walked over and I introduced myself and he asked what I did or whatever. And I told him and he's like, uh, he said, just so you know, the sinners live on this side of the street and the saints live on that side of the street. <laughs> I was like, okay, <laughs> I won't tell you what side of the street he lived on, but he, um, we didn't have a lot of meaningful conversation, right? I mean, just a wave or whatever until about three years in. He comes, I hear a knock at the door, and I open it up, and he's standing in the rain, weeping, and just says, would you pray for me? My wife just told me she's leaving me after 32 years, and he starts trying to walk away real fast. And I'm like, I don't let him. We sit, go sit in my garage, and we talk through it, and we start to, start to minister to him just by sitting in there and praying for his healing. He's broken, and he had nowhere to go. He has no relationships outside of anything. He's pretty much by himself, besides his family, which right now is, was being shattered. And so we sat there and talked, and for months, we talked and talked and went through things and tried to mature him in a way. He, he lost his marriage, but he found Jesus in the process. Okay? He was a guy who was raised in the church and ran from it as fast as he could at 12, basically. And then in his mid-50s, returns. And it wasn't because I had flashy words to say. I didn't even say that much initially. He just, when he went, where do I go? I can go there. So it became mission field. Are you living a sent life? You don't have to have flashy words. In fact, I feel like I know the Holy Spirit so much better because of uncomfortable conversations he's put me in that I have no answers to. And I plead with him, help me minister to this person because I'm way in over my head. And he does. Allow yourself to be used. It's a beautiful thing because you know what it gives you? That we're all seeking purpose. When you live a life of purpose, you're very dissatisfied outside of it. And trying to make enough money until you die is a lame purpose. Because you get to deal with eternity. God wants you in the eternity business. Live a sent life. Let's learn to take this, very, this second verse in this chapter. 
ministering to the Lord, let's let it be in our language. Let it challenge us that we, as we sing to him, as we pray, we're trying to exit all the things that we get out of this. And let's stand for truth. Know the word. Don't just take everything that we say up here. You got to own it. Don't outsource your learning of the Bible and of who God is to whoever stands up on this stage. We're just here to struggle with you. Know it. Learn it. Be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. Be saturated in the Holy Spirit that you can do His work and make an eternal difference.